This is Podco Media Networks. It's the Demystifying Data Podcast with Chris Clegg, where we deconstruct the tools and techniques marketers need to make data more actionable. Here's Chris. Hello, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Demystifying Data. I'm your host, Chris Clegg. And today's episode, I want to share with you a case study. I want to share with you an example of how a brand with a lot at stake uses experiential measurement to figure out what's working, what's not, to make adjustments and to have everything come together. And I think when we're doing case studies, the best way to do it is to break it into four pieces. I think we should start by talking about the brand challenge, make sure there's some details there. So you understand where the brand managers were coming from, what they were up against. And then we can talk about the campaign. And the campaign would be the marketing that they were initiating to help them overcome that brand challenge. And then there's the measurement strategy that was designed and put together to help measure the performance of that campaign. And then the fun stuff is the results. Let's look at the results and and what happened. And I think this is a really good example of not only how a brand can tackle the challenges of their market with experiential marketing, but how experiential measurement can lead to direct actions that improve things for everybody. And that that's really the takeaway when everything's said and done. I think it'll provide you with a little bit of a roadmap, but also really help reinforce the idea that this stuff works well when you are looking carefully at it and understanding what's performing. Because, you know, to give away the thunder now, the answer is that you have an overall average, an overall outcome that may be good, it may be bad, depending on how you're evaluating success. But in all circumstances, there are component parts that contributed to that outcome that under and overperformed. And when you understand the way those component parts contributed to that overall outcome, you can then have mastery over what that outcome is because you can control those parts. And that's what I want to share with you on how that was done. Okay, so the brand is a ready-to-serve brand. It's focused on uh, the dinner day part, and it's giving consumers an option of something they can take right out of the freezer and create an immediate meal for themselves or their family. And, you know, this brand was experiencing some slow retail growth. You know, they recently extended the brand with some redesign. They did some new lines. They had some new flavor profiles. And they knew that when consumers tasted it, the consumers became very loyal. So it had some solid rebuy rates. So the the rebuy for the product was great. The first time buyer would get it. And then the numbers for that consumer buying again were very strong. But, you know, the category was expanding quickly. There was a massive increase in competitive SKUs. And I think those SKUs had probably caught up to the brand. There were more people in the market than there had been before. At one point, the brand was a relatively big fish in a small pond, and the pond got a whole lot bigger, and they started to get a little bit smaller. So at the end of the day, there's only three places where you're going to get customers, right? You're going to get new incremental revenue from either teaching your current customers to increase the usage you're going to get new revenue from a competitor's customers coming over to you, or you're going to get new revenue by introducing people to the category. And this brand had rooted a lot of their historical success and their sales through new category acquisition. So expanding this idea of a ready-to-serve frozen dinner to a broader, more professional market. And that had been the root of their success historically. And now that more people are moving into the category and it became very cluttered, when someone was trying for the first time, there were more options. And so at a smaller percent of time, would they try this brand? 
And that was suspected to be the root cause of where their decline was. So they had to get more people to try their brand because it was a superior product. It was a superior ingredients in the packaging and and it, it had a little bit of a premium price, but it was worth it. It was a really good product. And if the folks that were expanding into the category were of a little higher income, they could uh, appreciate and accept the higher price for the higher quality. They just had to get them to try it. And that was the challenge. So it's obviously a great market challenge for sampling. And that's what the brand decided to do. They connected with a partner agency of ours to initiate an in-store sampling campaign. And they really went all in. They had about 900 retail activations to start. They had seven markets they were focused on. There were five different retail chains. And the design team for the marketing was smart because they laid out when consumers were going to be engaged in the store. They did that at different parts of the day. They laid it out in different ways so they could get a variety of feedback and input. Their sampling targets, like hitting the number of samples per day, was definitely a priority. That was one thing that mattered to everybody, and they wanted to make sure they got that right. But you know that that couldn't be done without also closely monitoring sales and ROI. You know, the brand had a lot of different marketing channels. They were a large national brand, and they were spending a lot of money on marketing, and every one of those channels were being evaluated. And frankly, the channels that weren't performing or the channels that couldn't demonstrate their impact during a certain campaign push those channels were going to see cut funding. They were simply, if you couldn't prove that it was working, then you weren't going to continue to get your budget. And even though they had commissioned these 900 retail sampling events, it was very clear that they would have been scaled back, if not uh, cut back entirely, if there wasn't some kind of indicator or proof that this stuff was working. And so that led us to the measurement strategy and how do we go about in this environment to create a process that allows us to measure accurately what that performance is. And so the team that I get to work with was tasked with doing that. And we were tasked with designing the data collection plan, implementing and designing those metrics, putting together the tools to collect that data, analyzing it and reporting on it. We had to get data from all 900 events. That was a priority. And we needed to make sure we could segment the information by market and by retail chain. And that really needed to happen so it could be actionable. So if we weren't segmenting results by market or retail chain, then we wouldn't have complete control over how to make those results different or how to improve on those results. So that was a key priority as well in order to make sure things were actionable. Now, the program ROI, it had to be monitored in some kind of way that was continuous. And the different markets and the different marketing and the different chains, they didn't always have the same budget and they didn't always have the same activation schedule or volume of activation. It wasn't equal. It was more strategic than that. And so therefore, the ROI had to really take into account the varying budget. So it had to be a true ROI. It had to be an ROI that was a, around the dollar return on investment. And we certainly needed to focus on that and, and find a way to do that throughout the process. The account team and the brand team, pivotal importance in the measurement, they couldn't be surprised. They didn't want to be surprised in the final recap of what the results were. That was clear and very much a priority going into the design of things. If things were going to be going bad, we all wanted to know as soon as possible so that we could start to fix them. So there was no secrets. It was a very transparent process that needed to be monitored and understood as things unfold. And so what we did, we started by just sitting with the account team and looking at all the materials and sitting with the brand team, sitting in on the initial calls around the program 
and just really getting a good sense of how folks talked about success. And it's always so interesting to read on paper what the KPIs are and then to listen to people talk about what their priorities are. And you would think that those would always be in alignment, but they almost never are. Every brief, I don't say every brief, but it seems like nine out of 10 briefs that I read when it talks about the goals of an experiential campaign, it's always to increase awareness and drive trial. And that's obviously the core of it, but different types of brand managers or different types of people on the brand side will have different aspects of the job that they're prioritizing, either based on where their skills and passions are or based on where the brand is in its life cycle and what matters most for that brand. And so you really have to listen carefully to what those folks are saying, how they're going to judge and evaluate success so that you can build a program that is going to align with that. So with that in mind, we developed a data collection plan. With that information and that background, we developed a plan that was going to be aligned with these ideas of how they were thinking about success, but also the data collection, we wanted that to integrate really nicely into the current run of show. We didn't want to create a big add-on that was going to interrupt the sampling experience or change the experience in any way for all the consumers that were being engaged. So we built a program that first started by looking at what are the metrics field staff are collecting, making sure all the field staff understood the definition of those metrics, that they were something that could be collected in a reliable manner so that there was consistency, and that we were also able to get that into a centralized data warehouse on a continuous basis, and that there was a checks and balance process in place so that we knew we were getting feedback for each event within 24 hours of that event. Because when you got 900 events, that are going to happen over four months, it's easy to quickly lose track of, of what's happening. So we put those processes in place and got them flowing. We made some adjustments to the current systems to do that. We brought some new systems in place, but really, for the most part, that came from using existing technology and existing implementations and just adjusting how they were used a little bit and, and seeing areas where there needed to be some training reinforced. And then just really following up and managing how they were being used on a continuous basis to make sure that it was going to provide the data that we needed. And then we also implemented a very simple four-question on-site exit survey. And it was only four questions. It was very, very short. Those questions focused on past experience with the brand and future intention with the brand, along with some profiling questions. And that allowed us to get a measure of consumer sentiment and response to the marketing that became critically important when it related to the ROI modeling. And so with those tools developed and in place, we then trained field staff on how to do it. We created some standardized training tools to help them understand what metrics are being collected and how to collect them and what was expected of them. And then we included in that a little bit of a discussion around best practices when it comes to consumer survey data collection. So there's good things to do and there's bad things you can do. You don't want to interpret questions for consumers. You don't want to do it in an ad lib manner. So there's best practices to make sure you get consistent, reliable survey responses. And we needed to make sure that the folks doing that were going to give us good data because otherwise as an analyst, there's nothing, you, you just, you analyze the data and if it's error prone and how it was collected, then there's really no patterns or trends that you can detect no matter how good you are and it's a waste of everyone's time. So we needed to make sure we were getting good data. And we did that through training and then monitoring. And, and there are people that needed retraining and there are people that got it right the first time. So that's the brand. That's the problem the brand had. And that's the 
program they went with. And then that's how we set up the and designed the marketing. That's the, the I'm sorry, the measurement. That's the plan and, and the, the priorities we have and putting that measurement together. And so what did it do for us? What did we learn from it? And how did that impact what we saw? So first of all, one key priority was the rate at which samples are being distributed. Are we going to hit the targets and are we getting to enough consumers to make this worthwhile? Sometimes retail can be risky that way because sometimes retail doesn't give you enough people to get to depending on what you're doing. And in this case, it was as expected. You know, we were averaging about 17 samples distributed per hour across the full range of hours that were being executed. Some were much stronger than others, but we averaged about 17. And you know, that's about what you could expect from retail. There was no surprises there of about 17 engagements per hour. Now we worked to eke that up because we were able to collect that information at the individual store event level. And so we could see, you know, what stores had higher average traffic than others. How did that change by day of the week? And how did that change by time of day? And over time, we were started to create optimal execution schedules, both day of the week and time of day by retail location. And that allowed us to manage that number higher. So over time, we were able to get that 17 to a higher level. And another thing that we learned about the samples, it wasn't just the volume, but the quality of the people we were getting to and how much they related to the target consumer that we knew was going to be most receptive to the marketing message. Because initially, that target consumer was not on track. It was off. They weren't reaching the kind of person that they were supposed to be reaching frequently enough to make everything work. But because, again, we were tying back that consumer profiling to time of day, day of week, and store, we were able to look at those occasions where we were reaching that target consumer at a ratio that was at or above what was needed to make everything work. And then we looked at those areas where we're at or above, those times a day, those days a week, those retailers, and then put more emphasis in executing in that way. And that allowed us to reach the target consumer at a much higher percentage. And then also, when it came to impact, at first, like is the case for many types of marketing, when we first executed, the ROI was trending negative. It wasn't a positive return on investment. They were spending more money than they were making, which is perfectly okay in so many different kinds of marketing. But for this program, in this situation, and the pressures on this channel, this experiential sampling channel, based on what was going on for the brand in the macro sense, that wasn't something that was going to result in a long-term relationship for this program. So we needed to fix that. And we were able to deconstruct the ROI model and identify where we were bleeding and, and then fix those things. And the team was able to use that to move the ROI into positive territory. And one of those examples was what I was just talking about with regards to reaching the wrong consumer. So when they were not reaching the right kind of consumer target, the messaging that was built into the speaking points for the activation and the value proposition of the brand that was being highlighted to consumers during the sampling, that wasn't connecting with the consumer they were getting to. The message to market match was off. And as they were able to identify those parts of day or those days of the week or those retail chains that had a higher proportion of those correct consumers, and then they were able to realign and reschedule their activations to be there when those better consumers were there, when the right consumer was there. That not only got them on target according to what the commitment was, but it also had that effect of increasing the impact. And with that increased impact, we were able to then eke up or move up the ROI over time. 
And we started to average an ROI north of 160%. We started to get a positive ROI. They were making about a buck 60, buck 61 for every dollar spent, which was fantastic. But what was even more insightful and even more valuable to the overall process is that when we segmented that ROI by market, we found that it had a very wide range. That range was actually 136.6% on the low end to 684.9% on the high end. So some markets were doing almost five times better than other markets when it came to the ability of the experiential campaign to reach enough consumers and convert them into customers either immediately on site and or through future intention and doing that at a price point that made it worthwhile. That was happening with a lot of variation across the markets. And so even though the overall average was reaching a plane of around 161%, there was enormous opportunity to increase that upwards of close to 700%, almost seven times higher, if they could get the best practices understood. And that's the secret. So we took those markets that were performing better than expected, we homed in on them, we looked at what were they doing that was special or unique, and we communicated that back through our reporting and analysis, back through the channels so that the other markets could understand that. And that gave the managers and stakeholders on both the agency and the brand side the information they needed to make adjustments and really explode the program and and make it hugely valuable for everybody involved. And I love this case study because it's a great example of how measurement can really change the playing field for how sampling performs for a brand. And with this approach and with our ability to move those to segment for best practices, identify them, and then through the reporting, communicate that back through the stakeholders, the original seven markets and the four months, it started at seven markets in four months, and it played out to be 18 markets over multiple years. And not only did they expand into 18 markets, but they added a mobile tour to the mix, and a lot of stuff got increased, and it was increased because it was working. And we understood it was working because we had the right measurement tools in place, the right process in place. But more importantly, there were teams on the brand side and on the agency side that were committed to the success of the process, and they were committed to the measurement and the insights it could deliver, and then they were willing to make the changes in order to really cause it to be an amazingly fantastic execution. So that's the case study I wanted to share with you. I'll include a link to a one-page write-up of this case study in the show notes. So wherever you got this podcast, go back to that location, whether it's Spotify or iTunes or Google Play, whatever it is, and you'll find in there a link that you can go ahead and download this case study if you're interested in having a PDF of it. And while you're there, while you're back at the site where you're listening to this podcast from, go ahead and hit subscribe if you're not a subscriber, because we want to uh, make sure you don't miss any of these episodes. We publish every Wednesday, and I hope you found some value in this. I hope you enjoyed it. And most importantly, I hope you're having a really great day. So thanks for joining us, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tune in next time as Chris Clegg continues demystifying data. Meantime, head over to demystifyingdata.co to learn more.